You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. Today, I'm speaking with the great Adam Pasulka. Adam, how's it, how, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Yeah. Enjoying the weather. It's fairly nice out today. Yeah. It's a hot start to the summer, but today has a little bit of storminess in the air. It hasn't stormed yet, but there's just enough to kind of break the, the colossal humidity. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. You have recently taken over hosting duties of the Magnet Mixer. Yes, John Ross and I are co-hosts of the Wednesday Night Mixer. Tell me about your, um, what is your vision for the Magnet Mixer? Uh, it very similar to Matt Saletti's vision. I think he had a great vision, and we're just trying to uh, at least continue that level of energy and enthusiasm, and I guess just let it build organically from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Matt was such a, a warm host, and I think people felt really comfortable going to that mixer. So um, at least keep that as a baseline. Yeah, yeah. What's your experience been in the past with jam shows in general? Uh, mixed, like most people, I think that they can be a cluster fuck. Um, but I think they can also be really wonderful Yeah, and, um, a great place for people to just come and work it out, especially in the early stages of their improv journey. Yeah. So, uh, as a host, I think it's just giving people that platform to feel welcomed and, um, and free to, to play. In the early days of the mixer, um, the mixer was was co-created along with Megawatt, and the original idea for the mixer was um, one night only teams of people from the different Megawatt teams who didn't get to be in classes together, hmm. and um, they would do I think two open scenes throughout the show where someone from Megawatt would play with um, someone from the audience who put their not their name in or raised their hand or whatever. Um, and it very quickly mutated away from that into making the scene of people playing with audience members into the whole act of the show. And that was the smartest thing anybody ever did for the Magnet Mixer. Yeah. It really separates it. I don't know if it's the first jam show to do that or someone else did it. I'm sure someone somewhere has done it before, but it really helps to separate that show from other jam shows, which if you've never been, those of you listening are frequently horrible, horrible experiences. Yes. What about them are, do you think is so horrible? Um, they, in my experience, they come in two varieties. They're either a short form based show, which is fine. Um, or it's a long form where they'll get like 30 people on stage at once. And uh, what will invariably happen is the drunkest, stupidest person ends up constantly tagging everybody out and dominating everything. Yeah. So it just becomes a showcase of 29 awkward people standing there looking uncomfortable and one person, you know, massaging his belt and pretending that it is his dick. Right. It's like a DCM bit show where um, 95% of the people are sober. Mm-hmm. Um, just not not fun to watch. Yeah, but something I like so much about the mixer is uh, that pairing of people who are a little bit more veteran with people who are new newcomers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really a, a great opportunity for people to feel comfortable on stage. Uh, and 
pairing people up is is really important, I think, because you get that feeling of surfing almost. I remember I did the lottery at UCB a few years ago when I was starting out. And um, it was a chance, you know, you put your name in a bucket and you basically did a herald with a bunch of veteran players. Mm -hmm. So I was in maybe 201 or 301 and I did a herald with basically half of Death by Ruru. Mm -hmm. And it was just magical. You know, you can't fail with those guys. Yeah. So um, when we get, you know, uh, megawatt performers who come and sign up for the mixer um, and we pair them with people who may be taking a free intro class, it's really fun to watch what happens. There's like two two layers to the mixer for me. There's that layer of um, pairing off with newer Pairing off with interesting combinations where experienced people get to play with inexperienced people, which to me is very much the join the circle mentality of improvising. I, and Armando has talked about it a lot in the past about like Dell's class back in Chicago in the day where you would get to play with people like Chris Farley and these guys from SNL who would just show up because they wanted to get more time in with Dell and how much you just kind of learn from osmosis with these people um and it's like present with the big sib and and it's present in the mixer and it's just this kind of idea of you learn by doing with other people in, instead of this idea of kind of climbing the the ladder or whatever totally i don't think it's an act of charity uh for the veteran improvisers either i think there's Far a, from it. a lot to be learned too um there's no curveball initiation like a mixer yeah. curveball initiation yes uh, I think when you get to a certain level, you observe etiquette, which is usually for the best, but um, it can take some of the the edge or the fun out of your play mm-hmm. if you're if you're thinking about your scene partner too much. Um, but I've done mixers where the first line out of someone's mouth is so wild, um, and it immediately puts me uh, either in my head or not. You know, I'm either in my body and I'm reacting to that, or yeah. I'm um, uh, totally thrown for the rest of the scene. So yeah. it's a really good exercise in that respect. Yeah, it, it it does keep you on your toes. I think that it also um, changes the way that you play in that you can read immediately when someone has something or when they don't and you adjust yourself. It's a very different experience from playing with, with people of your own experience level or people on your team. And I, you play more uh, generously, yes, which is always great. But I think that you get something by osmosis too from inexperienced people, which is something that the more skillful you become as an improviser, the less access you have to um, that kind of like raw um, uh, beginner's mind spontaneity that mm-hmm. that 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 feeling of not knowing what you're doing and uh, uh, and being okay with that. You lose it. You get better and you lose it. You just kind of know too much. And right. I think that you get some of it back when you play with someone really new and really fresh. It's like watching kids improvise as opposed to watching young adults improvise. Right. You know, if you, if you teach, and I'm sure you have taught a lot of um, different ages, uh, around the teens, you see the arms start to cross in front of the chest. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, we're going to be very closed down now at this point. Mm-hmm. Um. The other thing, apart from the, the circle aspect of it, is one thing the mixer does really well is it gives context to 
people. They understand what the show is and they understand what they're doing. I've, I've been to jams and participated in jams where for someone who doesn't already know all the language, um, it's probably a really confusing slap around mess that doesn't really do much to um, sell people on improv or, or, or increase the pedigree of improv in their own mind. It's just very, very messy. And I think that the mixer does a really excellent job of making people feel welcome and also making this experience understandable and digestible to them. And it kind of, it, it makes it safe to, to see both very good scenes and also to see really bizarre, crazy nonsense that is, can be equally enjoyable. I understand those scenes. The, the latter is unavoidable, but as a host, uh, maybe because I'm new, I feel so responsible when a scene doesn't get the response I want it to get. Totally. Um, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and, and that's why I think it's really important to pair up improvisers who are at different skill levels, mm-hmm. different experience levels, because uh, I want the, less experienced improviser to feel like they've succeeded. Um, and some, that doesn't always happen. That's just the way it works out. Yeah. So, um, as a host, it's important to keep that energy up, uh, and, and keep things moving. Yeah. So it succeeds more often than it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the other nice thing about the show is that there's an element of design to it. The host is aware of who's signing up and is pairing people up thoughtfully mm-hmm. to try to help both people. Sometimes you do shows where either everyone is called up or, or it's just literally pulled out of a bucket, which can also be fine, but you're throwing everything up to chance. Yes, absolutely. Um, I had someone at the mixer one time ask me what it was. And I said, it, it's real simple. You just do two person scenes or three person scenes and, and you'll be well taken care of. It's going to be great. And then she said, oh, okay, sounds great. What is a scene? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, you're very new. Uh, uh, and I enjoyed the challenge of that question. Nobody has ever asked me that question before. It took me a second to think of a response. What would your response be if someone asked you, what is a scene? Oh, oh boy. Um, and we had like five minutes till show, till the mixer started. Yeah. Um, tough, isn't it? Yeah, that's very tough. What is a scene? Um I would probably um, just start by asking them uh, how they came to be at the mixer in the first place, mm-hmm. not in, in a condescending way, just curious what their background was, mm. uh, and then work from there, you know, explain that um, everything is made up. This is going to be brief. It's going to be inspired by a piece of music. Um, do your best to have fun up there uh, and uh, trust the person you're paired with. Yeah. And then I would really make an effort to get that person on stage with somebody who is a little more experienced. Yeah. It's not an easy question. No. Let's back up a little bit. I want to learn a little bit about your story thus far. So I um, had heard about you long before I met you. Hmm. Some of the other teachers were talking about you and had told me specifically that I would enjoy having you in class. And then uh, you left for Second City and then the next time uh, I saw you, I think was already improv review. So by the time you were in my class, you were quite the mystery man to me. Where did you, you come from? So I big sibbed your level three intensive, intensive right? That's yeah. the first time we mm-hmm. really crossed paths in any official capacity. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up, I, I, I'll take you back, back. Um, I grew up right outside of Chicago in a suburb called Oak Park. 
which is about uh, 50,000 people, but still managed to, manages to be this weird nexus in a way. Um, and I, I think that'll come up later, but uh, I didn't do anything with Second City while I was there. Uh, I saw a couple of shows, but I really have no, had no interest in improv. I acted a lot when I was younger, um, when I was in grade school. I played the uh, titular uh, cad in Egad What a Cad in second grade. Uh, I caught chicken pox, so the the woman, Miss Lesiotis, had to do my role in a mustache on her knees, <laughs> <laughs> which is really unfortunate. But um, I guess I really got intimidated after grade school. Uh, we had like six or seven grade schools that funneled into two junior highs. Mm. And being an underclassman, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be good enough to continue doing this. So I quit for a long time. Um, I went to uh, New York for college. I was at Gallatin, which is a really hippy-dippy kind of make-your-own-major mm-hmm. school. I essentially did art and psychology, but it was like uh, printmaking, graphic design, painting, a whole bunch of other stuff mixed in Spanish. Um, and then I, I ran a, a magazine, kind of a, a street culture cool guy uh, quarterly publication with a marketing agency attached for about five years. And that was really cool. It was sort of like... Um, each issue was a different theme was with a different guest curator. So we did one on love with Lenny Kravitz. We did one on Samoa with this 90s hip-hop group called Booyah Tribe. Um, and that was a really nice... Um, Evan's not Evan's in. Do you know Booyah Tribe? Yeah, they're, they're, they weren't huge, but um, they're interesting. So that was a really interesting education. It was just a little bit too much... Um, man childness for me it was mm-hmm. a lot of uh, uh guys um pushing 40 who were really invested in in their reputation mm-hmm. and um and social status and uh i got sick of that pretty quickly but while i was there i wanted to get a little bit better on my feet so i took uh uh one-on-one at ucb with mike still mm-hmm. and just immediately caught the bug like i think a lot of people do and just blew through classes. So uh, I regret that a little bit. I think most people in my 101 slowed down and made sure they were in the same 201 together. Mm. I don't think I invested in the community as much as I could have. But um, yeah, I tore through the the core classes and then started taking advanced study classes. And God, to date, I've probably done nine or 10 of those, something obscene like that. Did you get in immediately or did you have to? I did. It was a little bit uh, less competitive back then, Mm -hmm. but uh, I was, I was a nut. So at one point I was taking uh, Delaney ASH, Advanced Study Herald, that overlapped with a a Tamanic ASH for six weeks. And those were both on Sundays. So I would do the Delaney from like 12 to 3 and then the Atamanic from like 3.30 to 6.30. It's a very intense Sunday. It was not a great idea in retrospect. Yeah. Um, and I may very well be the reason that they have new rules about how many classes you can take. But um, So I did a lot of that and I just, I just wanted more. Um, and I was still at the job, so I had uh, a little bit of money and time to spare. And I started taking classes at Magnet. My first class was actually dynamic duos with mm-hmm. Armando. Uh, Mike Dwyer and I signed up because we knew each other from UCB. Mm-hmm. 
and really enjoyed Armando. I think I did a free intro with Rick and really slowly started taking all the magnet levels as well. Um, and was fortunate enough to audition the last time Second City held auditions for the, the cruise line, which was at the magnet training, training mm-hmm. center, the old one. Um, it was something like three or four summers ago. Was this the very last time that they did it? Because they don't do it in New York yeah, anymore. Yeah, well, um, the contract is actually up with NCL at the end of the year. Oh, really? Yeah, so mm-hmm. they're, I think they're looking for a new cruise line to, um, to join. But yeah, this was the last time they held auditions in New York. Um, and that was just a really, really terrifying and wonderful experience. Uh, you've done improv auditions and they're so hit or miss and it's so out of your control. Mm-hmm. So I showed up and was fortunate enough to have really uh, great scene partners uh, and and did well in the initial audition. Uh, I think I was paired with Christina Dabney at one point and we had a really successful scene. The callback was sketch and uh, they assigned you a second city sketch from the archive and a scene partner. And you had about 30 minutes to prepare for that. And my scene partner partner was Lauren Olson. Yeah. Mm, and my- Heavy hitter. Hitters. Oh yeah, yeah. And my sketch, um, I I played a gentleman who had terrible social anxiety and was going on a blind date. So he's reading off cue cards, which is such a meatball because it's like, oh, I'm nervous. This character has to be nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at my script. This character has to look at note cards. Uh, it was just so easy for me in that moment. And I feel so lucky that that's what I was handed. But it was really cool to do that audition in front of uh, Ed Herbsman, who was sitting in with uh, Beth Kliegerman and Mm -hmm. a couple other people from Second City. Uh, And I got a notification from her a couple weeks later that um, she she wanted to put me on a ship uh, and that would happen uh, in the not-too-distant future. So about nine months later, I was on the Norwegian Gem. That was my ship too. Yeah, you did a contract as well. Yeah, I did one contract on the Gem. We talked a little bit about this. You didn't hate your time there, but you didn't end up doing another one. I I actually really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, Megan and I were both offered another contract together shortly after we got back. Um, but we had been, I think if we were offered another contract immediately, we would have done it. They like the couples because they save on room and board. It's easy Not for that them. You guys weren't great. But. And, and, and um and also, like, psychologically in the makeup of the group, a couple brings a little bit more stability, unless you get a jerk couple. But right. I think that's also important. But uh, we had been back in New York, like, just long enough uh, and settled just enough. And then we both got offered jobs at the Magnet. Um, Meg got offered AD, and, and I took over Megawatt. And then Beth got in touch with us. And it was, like, uh, it was sort of the choice of really take root here or do it again. And uh, my thing was... The first time is an adventure. The second time is a job. You're absolutely right about that. So my experience was you did a four month contract, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're usually four month contracts. And my first contract was aboard the gem, which is a smaller ship. And we were doing nine day cruises to and from the Caribbean from New York. And we were doing four or five shows a week, which is nothing. So it was a lot of settlers of Catan, a lot of drinking, a lot of writing, exploring the islands. Uh, that was really nice for about two and a half months. Mm-hmm. That last month and a half really started to feel like work, mm-hmm. like claustrophobic work. Uh, 
Were you guys doing the murder mystery too? Yes, or? we were doing the second murder mystery. I don't know if we were doing the same one as you, but I heard the first one was a lot rougher. I, I, was Mitch Massey in yours? So no. We did the rougher one. Yeah. I remember the last four that we did. We just had the most exciting countdown at the end of every murder mystery. It'd yes. be three to go. That last murder mystery, I don't think I've ever felt happier in my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So the murder mystery happens, uh, uh, for us was close to the last day of the cruise. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like a lunch thing. So it's bright out. You're in this dining room. There are tables of people watching you who don't really know what's going on. Inevitably two or three tables leave, um, at intermission. Uh, and it's basically short form worked into a really obvious murder mystery or ours was anyway. Yeah. Um, that was not the highlight of the job, but I was still getting paid to perform, man. So I couldn't complain. Sure. Totally. Yeah. It was, the rest was short form and sketch. Um, and the short form was what you made of it. Uh, the sketch, it was a lot of like, uh, kind of domestic situations that, um, I don't know how to phrase this, cruise ship passengers, passengers would, would find entertaining. Largely inoffensive, broad appeal, easily accessible sketches. Yes. I say largely inoffensive. There were, I, I they were, they were questionable off- choices. Right. They were offensive. Some of the ones we did were offensive in like how dated yeah. a lot of the, the stuff was and how sort of borderline uh, misogynistic some of the yes. stuff was as well. Yes. Stuff that I don't think would fly in a, in a, in our theater. Right. But for that environment, it has the most appeal to the most number of people and, and is fine. And the second city people are very smart in putting that material together. They know what plays. They know, they know what a good running order is for that show. Uh, the, the cast that followed, uh, so I did the breakaway, uh, the following winter and the cast that followed my cast, their director really wanted to push some buttons. So, uh, an interesting idea, but not great for the cast who has to perform those sketches for four months, night yeah. after night. Yeah. Yeah. That's a terrible thing. And not, not the place to push buttons, honestly. No. When you're getting paid that much money. No. To, uh, I don't want to gloat, but it is one of the best paid improvising jobs in the country. It might be the best. Short of getting whose line is it anyway. It right. might be the best paid gig you can get. It's, it's uh, because it's through Norwegian Cruise Lines is better than main stage at Second City or yeah. anything else. It's touring company. Yeah. But they're also, I mean, paying you for like uprooting your life for that right. chunk of time. And they, they say it's more, you're getting paid more for the time you're not performing. See, I, I don't, it's one thing if there's an audience that's traveling to Second City specifically to be entertained, but to also be um, pushed a little bit. You, you, you hope that you're going to see the best performers in the city kind of rattle you a little bit, but it's another thing if you're paying for a cruise and, and I had some really offensively stupid audiences on that cruise ship. Um, comically cliched, stupid audiences. These are not people that I would normally be happy to be around, but I feel like you have an obligation. It's part of the contract that you're there to entertain these people. You're not there to rattle things up and challenge their thinking on things. I had a few cast mates who really had a tough time with that. Uh, and for some of them, it may have been a cover for how uncomfortable they felt just performing that frequently in front of that many people. You know, the uh, the Stardust uh, ballroom was like 800 to 1,000 seats or something like yeah. that. It's huge. Um, but yeah, there were definitely some people who, who um, didn't take well to the ship. Yeah. 
It's funny though, when we, I don't know if you had this experience. So you do like an, like an improv, like a hosting crash course. Um, when you're doing rehearsals for the week before you go on the ship. Who, who taught you that? Who was your director? We had uh, Shad Kunkel. Oh, I've heard good things about Shad. I never met him. You know, it was so brief. We didn't really get yeah. to see anything. And I think we had uh, Nate Dufort as well. Who's ah, great. yeah. Nate um, was my producer. Yeah, yeah. I love Nate. Um, and one of the exercises they, they do is they have you take the stage and basically introduce a show or introduce a game by yourself. And they stand in the back of the theater and they just go, Bill Cosby, Mm -hmm. dildo, dildo. And see if you can continue on with your introduction without being thrown. Which is a very fair approximation of working conditions. Yeah, some of the stuff that people uh, suggested was just insane. I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but that that late night adults only improv show was the roughest, just the roughest. I found that it could be so fun or so painful. Uh, yeah, it could be horrible. Oh yeah, the kids show, which I was very nervous about, turned out to be the best experience. Yeah. I don't know if you enjoyed the kids show, but I, I loved it. I did. I did like a lot of them. Um, you know, it was night to night, yeah. but yeah, that was also enjoyable. Yeah. It, it was mostly, they were just like so excited for everything that you were doing and they would like run up on, 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 in the play area with you and stuff. It was great. Yeah. But the adults are like, and you really see the shadow of people come just out. monsters. Yeah. Really, really gross. And, 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 you know, that man child thing you were talking about before, that was like my big takeaway from that experience was like, oh, there's a problem in this country when people are so desperate, when a vacation means an opportunity to get as drunk as possible and to enjoy things on the level of like an asshole 11 year old. Yeah. I just, I don't think I've encountered that many people all at once where I realized that your sense of humor is an 11 year old sense of humor and not the good 11 year old sense of humor. Right. The the bad one. I, the bully one. Totally. I, don't I really try not to make generalizations about people who take cruises because, um, you know, there are a lot of wonderful people on those ships. I, of course, am, am reacting to the people who were vocal, not, totally. not the ones who were not screaming out dildo every night. Right, right, right. But uh, it is a, that type of vacation where everything's prepaid and sort of planned out for you um, uh, is popular with a certain type of person. I think they don't want to, um, have to think too much necessarily. Yeah. And they, basically they, many of these people have paid for the right to, um, act like babies for nine days. Yes. I, as a performer was getting paid well enough to put up with it most of the time, but sometimes the way you see people treat the staff was really, really painful. Yeah, we we had a couple of different times where so at, at the end everything's on a card when you're on a on a cruise ship and then at the end you sign off on all of your payments and you leave tips for people. If you're planning on taking a cruise, for God's sake, leave a generous tip, please, for all of your servers. You have a room steward. Leave a gener- leave twice what they recommend you leave for the room steward. You have no idea how hard these people work. Yes. Um, or how much they work, or how how infrequently they see their loved ones because they are busy cleaning after your shit. Every eight months, if they're lucky. If they're lucky, yeah. I, I heard so many horror stories below decks from people who like worked their whole lives and missed their children growing up, and now are like foreigners in their own homes. Mm-hmm. It's just horrible. Tip these people very well, but it, we had it twice in our contract that uh, two different people. Uh, revoked their tips 
they're stewards. And uh, the excuse, because they have, you have to give a reason why you're doing that, and the excuse they gave was they were offended by our performance, which is a total bullshit. Yeah, nothing, absolutely, fucking absolute piece of shit, monstrous, inexcusable behavior. Totally, it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. So was it like coming back after that experience? Did you feel really seasoned? No, I, I felt really self conscious hmm. because coming out of New York. Not a lot of other New York improvisers have had that opportunity. Yeah. It's kind of um, common for a Chicago improviser to have done a cruise ship. They obviously want to take care of their own in Second City, so they draw mostly from Chicago. But being, you know, I think uh, the the audition I went on, they took three of us maybe, which is incredible. Um, it's uh, I was so fortunate. But I had a little bit, and I'm I'm curious if you did uh, this mentality of like, shit, I gotta prove myself now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I I was awarded this fantastic thing, and and now I have to continue to earn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think I did have that, and I think um, I certainly felt it when I was in Chicago training. Mm. You kind of are aware that. Um, the people here have been working really hard and have planned this job as like a step in their, in their ladder. And now here I am kind of taking that from them or pushing them a little behind me in the line. Yes. And I was very aware of like, I better be super funny, which I was not and am not. That the, the awareness that you better be super funny is a guaranteed way to make sure you're not super funny. Oh boy. Howdy. Yeah. Um, and then I had a little bit when I came back, I, not so bad. It was worse for me when I was in Chicago, when I was back in New York, I was just so relieved to be kind of back in civilization that, uh, um, I was more nervous just about like my rustiness because I'd internalized a few habits on the ship that I was anxious to get rid of. Like uh, sexual innuendo and, uh, <sighs> proper nouns related to places in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I one night I hosted. Um, did you guys do debate on the main show? We did it a couple times. Yeah, debate's a killer game. It, it's um, the way it works is you get two political candidates. They leave the room. The audience decides on what topic they're debating, and you decide on this like incredibly complicated uh, whether whether it uh, it should or should not be legal for. Um, extinct brontosauruses to prognosticate or whatever. Right. Some crazy long ass thing. Yeah. Oh, or masturbate would always be. Masturbate comes up a lot. Yeah. I was the host of this bit. So I, I was very good at not taking this. I could always score a laugh at rejecting a suggestion. Yep. I got real good at that. Yeah. Um, so then you get the two politicians back in the room and they begin a debate and uh, behind them, they have a partner who's trying to pantomime what they're debating. So they're just talking extemporaneously all this time, trying to have it, sound like it makes sense, um, but trying to also guess at what topic they're debating. And then, you know, as the host, you have a bell and you kind of ding between sides to give them a little bit of a break. And uh, the audience kind of applauds as they get close to guessing what it is. And then at the very end, it's this whole big thing. Uh, um, We had it in the midpoint of the show. It's a great game. It really gets energy up. One night when I was hosting, I forgot to explain to the audience to applaud when you get when they're guessing. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so no one was applauding. So they were actually getting close to it, but they had no idea uh, um, uh, that they were near the topic. So they just like kept on going for a long, it lasted like 12 minutes or yeah. something. It lasted really long and the audience was getting bored and I couldn't stop it to like, 
uh, re-explain Couldn't the rules. Couldn't interject, yeah. What a huge fuck up. We were fortunate. We had uh, one super veteran cast member who had done something like 12 or 13 contracts. Yeah. Jesus. Was so passionate about Second City. Yeah. And was just a killer. I mean, he he was a rodeo kid, so he traveled the country when he was younger, and he he could give you two or three facts about any city yeah. in the U.S. Um, so just being under his wing was really helpful. I should say, I I don't know how you felt. I felt a, a surge of pride aboard that ship as a representative of Second City. Every time we did like the history of Second City uh, presentation for people. That was my that was my jam. Yes, I I never had to do that. I think I I would have, but would have been really nervous to do it. He was so passionate and knew so many little anecdotes yeah. that he always handled it. But we did workshops, which were either wonderful or a nightmare. You know, forty people, some of them hammered, um, playing red ball for fifteen. Minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we did have a woman come up to us after a workshop, and she was like, uh, "So." Great to see you. I actually took classes um, at Second City back in, I guess it was like the early 90s, late 80s. She's like, I studied with, um, do you know Del Close? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. He's sort of like the, you know, the forefather of all this. She's like, yeah, um, he was great until, you know, after our class finished, he came up to me and another girl. And he was like, you guys are really good, but if you want to take it to the next level, you should try heroin. And I was like, that's a little too on the nose, isn't it? But I guess that that happened to her. I don't know. You know, Del Close would not get a job anywhere if he were alive now. Yeah, absolutely not. It's like shocking, the shit you hear about him. Shocking. Yeah. We, uh, our first uh, producer on The Gem was Jeff Griggs, who wrote that book, Guru. I guess he he, uh, interned with Del or or was kind of his personal assistant. Very good book if you're interested in the story of Dell. Yeah. You can still find it at Barnes and Noble. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. He just sounds like a monster. Yeah. I understand the appeal. Um, uh, but he also just sounds like a complete bastard. Yes. Huge, huge piece of shit. Yep. Gross. Mm-hmm. Did you get magicians coming up to you asking if they could be part of the act? We, we had magicians. Um, we had plenty of magicians. I don't think many of them tried to cross that boundary. Uh-huh. We did have a gentleman, uh, a stand-up. Um, not contra- Jeff, not Jeff contra- Harms. Oh, Jeff Harms. Yeah, I know Jeff Harms. we played a ton of Catan with. Yeah. He sat in with us on one show, but oh. it was, he was killer. It Jeff was Harms is great. Like, he's fantastic. It's interesting because I think stand-ups, like it's a really uh, gross thing in the stand-up community to work on cruise ships. It's kind of derogatory to be like, oh, what is he doing ships now? Yeah. Um, but he was a killer. I mean, 90% of the show was crowd work. Uh, and just the way he engaged with the audiences was, was so interesting to me. And he's, he's also such a sweet guy. He's, he's a very sweet guy. And he's, he's, he's very Christian. Mm-hmm. He's very sincere about that. But he's not sanctimonious. You know, he's Christian in the, in the way that you're like, oh, okay, I, that's, that's what Christianity should be. Yes. He, he, there's a warmth and a kindness uh, that he projects onto everybody. It's really killer. I, I met three types of stand-ups aboard ships. You had um, the people like Jeff Harms, who were just like these amazing working comedians who uh, um, know how to apply their craft they do it really well um and they're probably the comedians that like other stand-ups look up to because like these are the nameless 
people in the army of stand-up who just master the art of stand-up. And make a lot of money working these ships. So it's, it's a good life for yeah. them. Um, type number two were the stand-ups who were too cool for this, who were just like miserable and felt like they were bottom it, like they had to pay their dignity. Mm. And they were generally really funny stand-ups until you were talking to them in the bar afterwards. And they were like a nightmare to talk to because they were the most depressed, miserable people. The opposite of Jeff Harms. You're like, hey, don't shit talk this. I work here too. Yeah. And the third type was the people who um, like really their sense of identity came from being a cruise line stand-up and they were like old school, like Borscht belt type of comedians um, who I was always a little uncomfortable with because a, there was like a swinging dick thing with them. Mm -hmm. They just like resented other comedians being aboard the ship and uh, um, was like really like kind of like shitty. Um, But also like they played to that like old school. What's with all this PC nonsense attitude. And you're like, Oh my God. Oh my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But it was really quite the education getting to know all three types. Yeah. A lot of really interesting people on cruise ships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're back in New York after the second contract. Yes. Um, all right. Now, if they offered you a third, would you do it or do you feel like you're done? I feel like I'm done yeah. unless it's a, a new opportunity on a new cruise line or, yeah. or a resort or something like that. I actually met my girlfriend on my last contract. So uh, I I promised I would bring it back around to Oak Park, Illinois. Here we go. Uh, We signed on like December, not this past winter, but the winter before, um, I guess, 2015, 2016. And a girl, uh, Julia, in my cast was like, there's a singer on the ship. Uh, She's the quote unquote Broadway diva. uh, And she's from your hometown. I was like, oh, that's crazy. So I started talking to her. She's a couple of years older than me. She actually played softball with my sister when they were in middle school. We wow. went to the same high school. We just didn't know each other. So uh, she would, she had a, a great gig. She would come uh, fly to meet the ship in the Bahamas or wherever it was on Thursday and then sail home with the ship and do two shows on Saturday night, get off in New York and do that three uh, three, two or three weeks a month. And that was her, you know, that was good money for her. Wow. So yeah, we've been dating for, uh, about a year and a half now. Congrats. Thank you. Um, oh, that's very sweet. That's very nice. Yeah. She's fantastic. There's something, I mean, I've only dated people from my hometown, so I haven't had that experience of like having to like get to know new people, but there's just like something about like your roots go back to that same place together. That's so very, it's like an unspoken contract there. I don't know. I Because I guess like it, it, we had talked about memory palaces at one point in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, memory palace for anybody who doesn't. Well, just Google it. You're on a computer. Look it, it up. Moonwalking with Einstein. I yeah. would recommend the book. Cool. I haven't read that. It's good. Yeah. Cool. Um, but uh, I kind of feel like your own inner memory palace is based largely on like the inner map that you have of your landscape as a child. That's and where you've interesting. Been. Yeah. You just kind of like associate the important things with like the stuff you already know and build on top of it. So it's interesting when you have someone who like the basic archetype of their memory palace is similar to yours. Yeah, I like that. It's so funny because so many of my friends from high school uh, who I'm still really close with went out of state for college, Mm -hmm. came back and ended up marrying people that they went to high school with and are now resettling in Oak Park Mm -hmm. in our suburb. And I was like, not, not, not for me. I'm going to New York. Um, uh, not only am I going to New York, I'm going out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And who do I meet? 
somebody from my high school. It's beckoning to you. Yeah. So what's the deal now? Improv is, is where is it in your life? Is comedy a full-time calling for you? Yeah, I want to I want to write and perform. Yeah. That's really what I want to do. I'm coaching a lot, which I love, love doing. I've been doing that for about three or four years, and I'm really lucky that I don't feel burnt out yet and still have a lot of passion for it. How would you describe your um, your priorities as a coach? It depends. It's group to group, really. I love getting my hands on, uh, you know, level two to level four group. Um, or, you know, 201 to 401 and, uh, people who, who are, are already interested and maybe have caught the bug, but haven't grasped, grasped the, um, the whole picture yet. Mm-hmm. And then just sort of, uh, working with them as individuals and as a group to see like, oh, do we need to work on base reality? Do we need to work on justifying? Is this a group that would take to the, uh, strict UCB idea of game well, uh, and just sort of attacking it from there building what form can we play with um to to help heighten and strengthen things that they're already doing well that's one of the exciting things about coaching it's weird this is going to sound super creepy this is going to cost me work after i say this but i doubt that i uh so i i didn't date much um i kind of lucked out pretty immediately but there is an element to coaching groups that feels like what I imagine dating is like yeah. in a sense of you're kind of like feeling out this other person, in this case, the personality of this group, and you're feeling out like where their passions are and, and what their language is, and you're getting a sense of, of what the potential is. And that kind of like um, uh, learning to kind of, grasp where they're coming from and then focus in on like, okay, this is where, this is where we're going to give our attention is one of the most exciting parts of coaching, like rote coaching, showing up just to kind of like work on yes anding or whatever is such a boring drag. It's so unfortunate to me. I, again, feel so privileged to, you know, there, there are a couple teams that I've worked with for close to a year now. And you're talking about comparing this to dating. It's so true. It's, it's like so nice that these people not only want to give me their time and trust me with their, uh, with their improv journey, they're willing to pay me for it too. That's how dating works. Right. Yes. Um, so it, it, it's totally like dating. I consider myself to be a pretty good coach, but as recently as this month, I've, uh, worked with groups and it was pretty clear that they just weren't interested in what I was bringing to the the table. And, you know, it stings a little bit, but you get used to it and yeah. you realize you're not a good fit for everybody. I, um, I, it's weird, but with groups that I connect with, there's like an intimacy there between coach and group, uh, um, that I, I don't experience in a lot of other relationships there. Again, when you get away from just rote by the book coaching, there, there is a, a little bit of a, I don't know, it's like partly therapy, partly relationship, partly working on your comedy, partly, I don't know what else it is. It's a lot of things lumped into it. But you have this like weird, interesting, intimate connection with people. I'm not, no, I'm not saying anything like inappropriate or no, crossing a line. No, of course not. I, I, I would even say that after a certain amount of time, I think it's important to break that connection. I could not agree more. Like I said, I'm coming up on a year with a couple 
groups and I love them to death, but we're just a little too buddy, buddy now where I don't feel like, um, I'm pushing them, them as hard as I could. I don't feel like they're necessarily taking the work as seriously as it could be. And I, frankly, I'm just running out of shit to do with them. I also feel when I'm working with groups, like part of the thing that's exciting for me is, um, I'm not exactly sure what I mean a lot of the time mm. until we're in the middle of like figuring it out together. Like, you, Yeah, this is going to sound backhanded and it's not i think it's a fantastic thing you my experience with you is that you talk a lot yeah i do i like that i really appreciate that um i think you were one of the more thoughtful coaches teachers i've ever had before and i understand that's not everybody's speed um but that's all to say i think you do make it out to the other end with a solid point when you go down that road that's the goal uh and and the goal is to try to figure out the specific language that this group of people is speaking together and to figure out the thing that's special about them through their own language. That's discovering a scene too, I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the thrill of it is you don't know exactly what you're helping to deliver. You you're kind of like working with people and getting involved with them to figure it out. But I also feel that after a year of that, once you have it figured out, it's time to move on. You lose a little bit of the luster yourself. It's not discovery anymore. It's just like maintenance. They will also benefit from working with somebody else at that point. I remember a theme from Jurassic Park, which was basically a uh, conservatory team um, that turned into an indie team. A lot of really wonderful people. We worked with Willie Appleman for almost exactly a year. And it was hard for us, but we got together and we were like, I think we need to fire Willie. I think it's just getting a little stale. And we agreed to do it um, sort of with a a heavy heart. And we came into practice that day. And before we could say anything, he was like, guys, I think we need to end this soon. Mm -hmm. So we both felt it. We all felt it. It's interesting in like a weird way you do kind of like you practice breaking up a lot in improv. Mm -hmm. I never really thought about that before, but it becomes like part of your experiences. Like groups break up, you break up with coaches, you fall out with people that you came up with. There's a lot of practicing breaking up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you, you mean outside of scenes? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully we don't break up outside of scenes. Like we break up in scenes. No, it would be a lot of screaming, a fair amount of screaming. Yeah. Or in my case, just a lot of passive aggressiveness. <laughs> it works too. Yeah. How's your health? My uh, health is very good. Thank you for asking. Um, I assume you're asking because I had surgery recently. Yes, sir. Yes. So uh, to mention my girlfriend again, I'll give you the um, medium length story. I was out in Los Angeles with her visiting her family for the first time. They have a really nice place on Manhattan Beach um, right after the the holidays. So this is right before this last New Year's. Um, And we were staying with them. We were scheduled to fly home uh, the day before New Year's. And we were cooking dinner for them that night. We had a late flight. We had went to Whole Foods. And I was a little anxious, but nothing out of the ordinary we were in the kitchen, Carla and I, and, you know, her parents were watching TV or something. And I just felt really anxious and I felt like my vision kind of zoned out, you know, like you do sometimes where you have to will yourself snap back into focusing. Um, 
that lasted a little bit longer than it usually does. And I, it, it occurred to me that I might be having some kind of anxiety attack, which I hadn't really had in about a decade. But, you know, given the circumstances, it wasn't impossible. So I was about to excuse myself to go lie down. And then my vision sort of shot up into the left. Um, not anything drastic, but I realized at that point I couldn't control my eyes. And they started pulling to the left. So I was staring at the ceiling, um, just sort of tracking the lights. And my only thought was, this is really bad. Uh, I have no say in what's going on. Uh, just as I was about to say something, uh, I lost all control of my body. And I think I was able to sort of utter, Carla, I don't feel well, as I hit the ground. Um, and I blacked out at that point and had what's called a grand mal or tonic-clonic seizure, which is a full-blown sort of um, frothing, uh, convulsing uh, seizure where, you know, I had cyanosis where you turn blue. Uh, Her father was an Eagle Scout, so uh, he actually ended up giving me CPR. This is like three days after I met him for the first time. He gave me mouth-to-mouth. I don't remember any of the seizure, which is great because it sounds pretty terrifying. When I came to, there were three or four EMTs standing around me, as well as their neighbor who happened to be the head of the ER at UCLA, which is pretty fortunate. And I had an IV in and I had no idea where I was. You know, they asked me, do you know what city you're in? And I was like, "Mm, weird question, but no, I have no idea. So they took me to um, a hospital in Torrens called Providence. Really lovely hospital, really wonderful people. And they did a CAT scan uh, pretty much as soon as I got there and showed me a golf ball-sized mass in my right prefrontal cortex, um, eerily circular, um, no no bigger than a golf ball or a gumball. They thought it was something called an arachnoid cyst. So the uh, arachnoid is a layer around your brain. It's one of three, and that can fill with cerebrospinal fluid and cause, cause problems or not. A lot of people have these cysts and just live their life with them. But they put me on anti-seizures and sent me back to New York to see a neurologist. And that's what I did a couple of weeks later. They did an official MRI and um, told me it wasn't a cyst, but it was a tumor. Uh, fortunately, it was well-defined, which usually means it's benign. And there was no what's called midline shift. So the center line of the brain wasn't pushed which is also a good sign because that, that means it's probably congenital or has been there for a very long time mm-hmm. as opposed to rapid growth. Um, I uh, talked to a few neuro-oncologists and neurosurgeons, and the consensus was that it needed to come out to be biopsied. Uh, they, it, it was a very weird thing to be told. You have a brain tumor uh, it's not an emergency. Take a look at your calendar and schedule yourself a brain surgery in the next three months. And we'll talk then. So that was something I had to make peace with. It was like this very slow motion, painless trauma, mostly painless trauma. Uh, and I, 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 my parents were fantastic. My dad was in and out of New York from Chicago. Uh, he's a, a neuropsychologist, so he knew just enough about this to be really frightened, I think. You know, he's dealt with a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries. Um, fortunately, and, and I, I, I mean that, um, it was a, what's considered a very easy tumor. So it was small. Uh, it was about two and a half centimeters. 
it was close to the surface of the brain and it wasn't tied up with um, motor function or cognition or anything like that. At least that's what they assumed when they went in. Um, I found a neurosurgeon in Mount Sinai that I had a lot of confidence in and they, uh, on April 7th did a two or three hours surgery and resected the full tumor. And I was in the hospital for two days before being sent home. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So my health is good. A long story short, I, my energy is about 100%. I was told that I might lose uh, feeling in half my body for a couple of weeks. That only happened for about 45 minutes. Uh, I was on steroids for a week after the surgery. When I got off the steroids, uh, the day, like that day, I lost feeling in, in half my body. And that was more curious or almost fascinating than anything because I had been warned that it was going to happen. It was like a Novocaine. Exactly. Kind of it was my face and my arm mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my speech still isn't, isn't 100%. It's gotten so much better and it continues to improve, but my voice is a little weak. Um, most people who know me, can't notice it, don't notice it, but uh, I tend to slur a little bit when I get tired and it's tough for me to speak quickly or loudly um, with ease. So I think getting back to performing was tough because I was really self-conscious of that and my my vocal range just still isn't what it was. Do you feel like yourself? Yes, I do. And that's that's a really great and important question because going into a brain surgery, there's the fear of death. Obviously it it was a low risk. I think it was like 1% chance of bleed, which doesn't necessarily mean death or infection as well, which doesn't necessarily mean death. But, um, there is that question of, am I going to be a different person on the other end of this in some way, physically, mentally, um, and it's incredible how quickly the bullshit details will sneak back into your life two, three weeks after having a brain surgery. You know, I spent the week after surgery crying my eyes out every day. Um, it, I would have these weird sort, sort of, um, quick sobs that could just as easily turn into like weird maniacal laughter because I, the emotion of the experience was just catching up with me. Um, and I really did look at things differently for about a week and then it stopped for the most part. And I was like, fuck, I need a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I going to do for money? Um, how, you know, uh, how do people view me? Um, what's my relationship like with my girlfriend and my parents, the same stuff that had been bothering me for 32 years, probably not 32, but you know, 28 Long years. Enough, yeah. yeah up to that point. So that's a, a blessing and a curse, but mostly a blessing. It's interesting. You, you spend so much of your life, I'd say between like 15 and 35, um, wishing that you were better than you are in a handful of ways, whatever, whatever department you, 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 wish there was improvements on, but you spent, you spent so many years, uh, um, kind of not liking so much of yourself. And then I would imagine when that is threatened to be taken from you and you have to face the deeper parts of yourself that are, you don't conventionally think of as you, 
I would imagine that when all the bullshit details of yourself come rushing back in, there must be a sense of relief. Yes and no. Yes and no. It, it was a little bit of, I don't want to take this for granted. I'm so glad I still have the ability to worry about these things. Mm-hmm. But going into a surgery like that, having that kind of experience, there's also this, I will say now, somewhat naive hope of like, this is going to be the thing that that turns my life around and all of those deficits that I've felt, um, they're no longer going to be there. It's not that that those holes are going to be filled. It's just that they're not even going to be holes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when that's not the case, um, that can be tough too, just getting back to uh, the way things work. But you don't have a, 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 an appreciation for those deficits or a familiarity with those deficits? You still don't like those deficits? No, I think uh, by nature, you, uh, if it's a deficit, you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that might be a slow process. I, you know, my, my hope and, and my instinct is that this, the, the value of this experience, uh, and I do mean that, isn't going to hit me like a thunderbolt uh, a month or two after surgery, but it's going to take a lot of reflection and, mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. Well, the good thing is um, you probably scored some pretty serious points with your girlfriend's parents. I think so. I hope so. I mean, when you get mouth to mouth from her dad, now there's a bond there. We have a bond. The two of you. Unfortunately, I wasn't conscious when we made that bond, but it's it at least exists on one half of the relationship. Nevertheless, yeah, it remains. Absolutely. Um, do you mind if I ask a gross question out Please, of personal I, curiosity? I love it. I love it. So, uh, uh, when you get sick like that and need a surgery like that, financially, what do you do? So I w- I'm on Medicaid. Okay. New York Medicaid, uh, and I'm really lucky to be on Medicaid. So the fact that I had this seizure in California, the hospital bill before uh, any insurance was $22,000 for one night in the hospital. Uh, Insurance or something took care of everything except for about $1,000 of that. Jesus. Uh, I've, since I've been in New York, all the appointments I've had with the uh, with my neurologist, my neurosurgeon, neurooncologist, the surgery itself, um, and two days in the hospital. One of those was in the ICU, uh, and all the medication I've been on um, has not cost me a dime. Wow! Yeah, so I'm again really fortunate for that. My God, life wipe out a person's life saving for one night in the hospital. Totally. Not to get political, but come on, come people. on, guys, come on, guys. There's no reason for that. If you're not going to do it for yourselves, do it for me. <sighs> so where to from here? How are you feeling these days? I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm still working with those deficits uh, or perceived deficits. You know, um, Let, let's actually. When when you say deficits, just to make sure we're we're mm-hmm. on the same page about it, are you talking about like per, the same kind of deficits 
you normally grapple with, like issues with your own personality? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You know, just, uh, how come I'm not nicer? How come I'm not yeah, more ambitious? Uh, how come I'm not, et cetera. Totally. That feeling of lack. Right. And it's not constant. You know, I don't, I don't mean to say like, uh, I feel like, um, my life's in shambles, but, um, that I, I do a lot of upward comparing mm. and that's great because it, it can be a really nice motivator, but it can also leave you oftentimes in a place of, uh, I need to be doing more. I need to be more, whatever. Uh, and, and I think that's, this isn't a, a profound insight that's being made for the first time, but I think that's why a lot of people come to comedy and improv because it's like we get immediate validation mm -hmm. when you don't get that validation or when it's not as strong as you'd like it to be that can sting. So I think it's, it's just a matter of how do I not hinge my feelings of self-worth on the audience's reaction or on my paycheck or on um, how a certain person feels about me in my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Right. The, um, I'm a very big Mark Rylance fan. Uh, uh, I don't know if you like him. I don't know him. He's a British actor. He, he kind of made it big in uh, the States. Uh, first with Wolf Hall on PBS. They imported that from BBC. And then he did um, Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Mm. And, and that kind of, he won, an, I think he won an Oscar for that. He's a great actor. And um, he spent a few years as the artistic director at the Globe Theater in, in England, uh, which is a, a like an exact facsimile of the original Globe. So they're performing in, in the same conditions that Elizabethan actors would have been performing in. You have people like right there and they can leave anytime they want and the audience is like milling around and talking and all this shit, performing in open daylight and an open roof theater for everybody. And um, I saw an interview with him where he was saying that the, the thing he took away from that experience was um, that there's just one room. And what he meant is um, he learned to experience the audience as um, invisible characters that are, that are present in the room with you at all times. They're the other people in your head who are watching what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it changed his sense of performing for people and turned it into this kind of inclusive thing of letting people in, of having this intimacy, of recognizing that they're in the room with you and you can't see them, but you're talking directly to them, um, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. And you can see some of his performances on YouTube and, and you really see he has this amazing ability to not only make the, the Shakespeare very accessible. Um, but you see that he's really good at, at, at talking to people. It feels like he's talking to people. It doesn't feel like he's performing. It mm. feels like he's talking to people. Um, and it got me thinking about my own insecurities about the audience's role and, and that way that an audience, you, you kind of lean on them for that validation and support. And I don't know if you're like me, but there's also a little bit of resentment of them. There's a fear of them and a resentment of why do you have this power to to improve my self-esteem? Right. Which is a total projection from my own psyche onto them. But this very complex relationship with an audience. But I realized after I watched that interview that 
I'm very afraid of making eye contact with the audience. I look past the audience. Um, uh, it's something I'm trying to learn how to not do anymore. I really, uh, that really helped being on a ship and doing 11 shows a week. Because after a while, you just have to. You're forced to. Um, and and that was such a gift. Being on the cruise ships with Second City is just like, this audience might be tanked. It might be 20 people. It might be 800 people. But they're there and they're not going away, hopefully, um, to deal with them. Yeah. Uh, and and the gentler uh, a touch you can have, the better. You know, the greatest experience I had on the ship is so stupid. We were doing a show in the uh, Stardust one night, which is an 1,100-seat theater. Mm. Uh, at one point, a group of maybe 25 people got up and walked out all, all together. And I didn't care at all. It was like 25 out of 1,000 is not bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't bother you. That's that's half the magnet. That would be half the magnet all walking out at right. the same time, uh, uh, which would, I don't think I would ever perform again if it happened in the magnet. I think it would it would mentally, mentally uh, uh, um, leave a mark on me. Oh, yeah. But in that theater, you can, you're watching people. And I remember thinking, I saw them. I was in the middle of perform, like performing a hosting bit and I saw them leave. And I remember thinking, that's got to be 25 people leaving. There they go. And then just continue with your bit. You're, you don't care. Yeah. You could probably also track it back to the shot at Bill O'Reilly you just took. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very likely. Yeah. Very likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, cruise ship audiences love Bill O'Reilly. They do. And hate Bill Cosby, interestingly enough. Make of that what you will. Doesn't stop them from constantly giving it as a suggestion, though. Whatever name is uh, most on TV is the thing that they seem to be the most passionate about. That's the other, like, miserable takeaway I took from that experience. Charlie Sheen was going through his whole thing when I was on it. So we got Charlie Sheen every night for four months. We got Charlie Sheen every night for four months. It's incredible how how that was still in, in the psyche at that point. It, it, I can only imagine what it's like to do it now under this president. I, I that would be enough to keep me from it. Yeah, a bunch that, of people that alone, quit. I know there was, a, there was a big controversy yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, audiences were getting meaner or or uh, 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 felt more invited to talk back. Yeah, the, the my takeaway from that experience, not to end this on a dark asshole cynical note, but like. It's all borrowed ideas. It's all, it's just other people's ideas constantly floating through our, our heads all the time. And so many of us are patting ourselves on the back for our strong convictions without even giving it the second thought that just spewing out the shit that happens to be on TV. Yes. The thing that's most on my mind right now is Charlie Sheen. Really? That's what's most on your mind? You're participating in the miracle of life. You give a shit about Charlie Sheen? Fuck yeah. you, dude. A nightmare. So are you ready to hit Senor Frogs? Now? Oh, yes. Let's do it. <laughs> Adam Paselka, it's been a pleasure talking, man. Thanks, Thanks so much. Was- yeah. Uh, plug some stuff. Please come to the Magnet Mixer tonight at 6 o'clock. I think it's past 6. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, any Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Yeah. Um, don't come tonight because you, you may be listening to this on a different night. But yeah. Check the website. We'll listen to this on a Wednesday and then come tonight. Uh, otherwise, uh, youths at Megawatt 
Uh, I think we're up at seven in July. Uh, I'm not sure when this is going up, but yeah, come see you. This fabulous every Wednesday, uh, Adam Pasolka. I'm glad you're well, and uh, uh, you know, best of luck going forward. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, thanks everyone for listening. A couple of other thank yous, as always, first to our producer and engineer today, Evan Ford Barden, our executive producer Ed Herbstman, and all of you wonderful folk for listening to this. Hey, if you are on a cruise ship recently, I didn't mean you when I was railing off on that. You know the type I'm talking about, that uncle that you feel uncomfortable talking to. It's not you. You're a decent person, but seriously. Dildo. <laughs> uh, do something nice for somebody, huh, will you? Uh, thanks for listening. Give us a positive shout out on social media we would sure appreciate it we hope that you are having a great time we love you goodbye goodbye you've been listening to the magnet podcast This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.